This episode of Zero Brightness is brought to you by you. You can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness to sign up to support the show directly and get bonus content multiple times per week. Thank you to everyone who supports the show, and I look forward to meeting more of you soon. What do games make us feel? For a long time, this question was discussed relative to a game's plot or story. Maybe we were sad because a character died, or triumphant because the story reached a conclusion that we found to be satisfying. More recently though, we've started to have more nuanced conversations about our emotions and the way that games manipulate those emotions. One game that comes up a lot in these conversations is Dark Souls. People love to talk about how Dark Souls puts you through the ringer and thus elicits these powerful emotions from you. Fans of the game seem to enjoy the fact that you have to leave it all on the stage, as the old saying goes. Personally, I didn't figure out how to get that type of enjoyment from that series of games. But there is another game that I found to be a slightly similar experience that also ended up being a really emotional ride. You know, for a game that seems to be actually quite simple and patterned after a 16-bit action game, I felt like it elicited a really, really strong emotional response. And similar to the Souls games, it did it without anything like normal dialogue or a concrete story. It was literally just having you walk through a world, gaze upon it, and just take it all in. And somehow just that was enough to create this powerful, moving experience. It's truly one of my favorite games of the last 10 years. A dark, strange journey that I found to be like little else in the medium of video games. So today, I just wanted to talk about it. Consider this a love letter to one of my favorite games, Hyper Light Drifter. I hope you guys will come along with us on this journey and see where it takes us. Today's episode is all about the ride. very distinctly the first time I saw Hyper Light Drifter. It was a pre-release trailer that I had found online, and I remember clicking on it just because it looked cool, but when I actually saw the trailer, it was so much more than that. It was this crazy looking, sort of Zelda style 2D action adventure game, but that aesthetic was just so powerful. It 
had this kind of day glow, neon look to everything. And it was this mix of sci-fi and fantasy. Like it was in an ancient world that had almost been infested by technology. It was utterly captivating. And of course, it was all set to this outrageous music. I mean, outrageous isn't the word for it, but it was just so head-turning. I had never heard anything like it. It was this mix of sad, lamentable piano and soft, sighing synths that crescendoed into this sort of sad, epic swell. I knew immediately that I had to play that game. But at the time, I wasn't really playing games. You know, I've talked about this a little bit before on the show, but I basically took a whole decade off of playing video games, which to a lot of people listening to this is either super relatable or entirely unimaginable. Essentially what had happened was as I started college and I left high school is probably a better way to put it. And I started entering the real world. I started to have less and less time for video games. I still enjoyed playing games and especially things on my trusty PS2 that I dragged around everywhere. But as the seventh gen started and new things started to come out, I wasn't connecting with them as hard. You know, I lived with my sister on and off for many years and they had a 360. So I was always able to try out new games and maybe have some kind of experience with them, but they just weren't connecting with me. I love that late PS2 and late GameCube stuff so much, and it all felt so fresh and exciting that to then sit down and play games that were visually impressive and exciting, but on a gameplay level were just rehashes of older games I had already played, it was pretty deflating. I also had a big decision to make around this time. I wanted to get started, you know, recording music and working as an engineer, and I needed a ton of gear to do that. And the only thing I really had to cash in was this video game collection of mine, which I suddenly realized was, uh uh-oh, worth a bunch of money, because it was all horror games, fighting games, and RPGs. You know, the things that are worth money. The confluence of all those factors led me to sort of turned my back on gaming for a while. And it's a decision that I don't regret, honestly. I mean, at that time, video games were starting to be a pretty big time and money investment. It wasn't like the late 6th gen, where games were plentiful and cheap and all over the place in terms of length. You were just as likely to pick up something like Mr. Mosquito and mess around with it for a few hours as you were to pick up a much larger more epic game. The marquee consoles of the next gen just weren't like that. They were expensive, the games were expensive, and a lot of them were just time sinks. You know, I did have a Wii at this time, and I really enjoyed the Wii, because it was almost the opposite of that. It had a lot of smaller, weirder, more experimental games that weren't trying to be showy or blockbuster in any way, shape, or form. It also had the eShop and the Virtual Console, where there were tons of cheap thrills to be had. So yeah, there were games around, and I would still play them every once in a while. But by and large, I wasn't playing video games, and I wasn't keeping up with them. I just didn't really care what was going on. 
I think the first thing that started to maybe change my mind or tune me back in was actually watching Indie Game the movie, which is kind of a strange movie. It doesn't paint a very flattering portrait of the people who make indie games, and that's kind of what I like about it. Of course, it also just hit me to the fact that there was a bunch of cool, weird, fascinating games that were bubbling just under the surface of your big AAA mainstream video game culture. And of course that appealed to me as an underground artist and a person whose job it is largely to chronicle underground art. Now, what got me to actually pick up a controller again and really get back into games? Well, on a nuts and bolts level, it would be the fact that I had this year where I built two computers for my studio. You know, I was moving out of one studio space, I was suddenly going to have to be working from home and from a dedicated workspace. So, you know, I had a friend help me build some computers. And I spent so much time on that and sourcing parts and spending money and blah 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 that by the time I finished the second one, I was kind of like, man, you know, I should just play some fucking video games on these, right? I could do that, right? And so I jumped on Craigslist and I grabbed a graphics card for $40 that I picked up from a Burger King parking lot. And I decided to play games again. And the first game, of course, that I downloaded was Hyperlight Drifter. That trailer had just been stuck in my head and I had to play the game. It wasn't the first game I played though. That honor actually went to Fallout 3. Fallout 3 was one of the few games from the 7th gen that I really felt like I had missed out on and I really wanted to play. And of course, I needed to make sure that my new $40 Burger King graphics card worked. And Hyperlight Drifter could run off of integrated graphics. It wasn't really going to put my $40 Burger King graphics card through its paces. So I chose Fallout 3 instead. Now, not to detour too hard into this, but it is kind of relevant because I feel like there are some similarities between Fallout 3 and Hyperlight Drifter, but uh, Fallout 3 rocks. Um, I really love that game. As someone who played a lot of the original Fallout games and someone who really loved those games, I thought 3 did a great job of translating the world of Fallout into the modern era. You know, it's very much a Bethesda game. It's in the style of a Bethesda open world action RPG game. But it has so much of that Fallout flavor. You know, the writing, the character interactions, the world design. It really puts you in the shoes of an anonymous wanderer traversing this post-nuclear wasteland. And it's a fantastic game. I also love the fact that it let you choose how you wanted to play on a very basic mechanical level. You know, you could play it sort of like a first-person shooter, but you could also play it like an RPG. You know, you can always pause, take your time, set up your shots, decide what you're going to do next. I thought that was a really nice touch, and for me it was kind of the first time I played a Bethesda game that actually nailed that action RPG hybrid combat. I don't know if that's a hot take or not, but I played a lot of Morrowind and a little bit of Oblivion, and the combat in those games was not good to be charitable. So yeah, I ended up playing Fallout first, because I needed to test my graphics card, 
and the intro to that game is really good, and I was sucked in very hard. However, after finishing the main story of Fallout 3, I flipped over to the game that I had been intending to play, which was Hyper Light Drifter. And when I actually got a chance to play the game, it was not just the realization of everything I had been looking forward to since I saw that trailer, but it was in fact something so much more. Throughout this episode, we're going to try to touch on what that something is. And I don't know if we'll actually get there because one of the great things about this game is just how weird and intangible its pleasures are. Later on, I'll be joined by my friend Justin for an in-depth discussion of the game. But first, I just wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about my experience with it and give you some background on the game. So what is Hyperlight Drifter? Well, it's a 2016 action-adventure video game. This is originally developed and published by Heart Machine, which is a studio that's headed by Alex Preston. He's also one who's largely credited with the creative vision of the game. And reading interviews with him is very, very interesting. He likes to emphasize the emotional aspect of the game and how important it is that the game is an emotional experience. Yet, the first time you see the game, it kind of just looks like a Zelda-style action RPG. These two ideas seem incompatible, but that's why I'm going to spend the next however long trying to break down and analyze and figure out why this game has such a strong impact. So, to describe the game in larger terms, yes. It is kind of a Zelda-style, vaguely 16-bit-looking action RPG game. The world, as I said earlier, has this very wild look to it. It's a lot of, like, neon, super bright, dayglow colors. It has this 80s sci-fi meets... 80s low fantasy look to it and it really plays with a lot of those tropes i think another thing that doesn't get talked about enough with this game is just how good the animation and visuals are in it you know it doesn't just have a somewhat 80s look to it because it uses neon colors it also has this very fluid and beautiful style to the animation that almost makes it look like some hyper-detailed version of, like, voxel graphics. Which, to me, just always makes me think of old arcade machines. Hyperlate Drifter is set in a ruined world. Now, like everything relating to the game's setting and story, you don't know why it is that way, and you're not given a lot of concrete details. The game has no dialogue, and it doesn't even really have anything besides very short cutscenes here and there, and some little pictographic bits meant to show you some backstory of the world. But the world of the game is so, so, so fascinating. You know, it's a ruined wasteland of a world, but it's also bright and colorful and dense, which is something I really haven't seen very much in video games. There are people who live in this world, and there clearly are civilizations that have come and gone. You, as an adventurer, are kind of walking through the 
corpse of these many strange civilizations, but you're also doing it because there are people in this world that need your help. The central figure of the game is also very strange and mysterious. You're sort of a hooded wanderer with a sword and a gun, of course, because that's just cool. But you also cough up blood periodically, and you appear to be quite ill. <laughs> now, your character can dash around and move in a very agile way, and the game's mechanics are extremely tight and focused, which is part of what makes the world design so interesting. Like, we'll talk about this later, but the pacing of the game is just so strange and unique. You'll get into these frantic, fast-paced, strategic fights that are so tense and nail-biting, but then you'll be just sort of languidly wandering through this world that really seems to exist mostly to cast a spell on the player as they wander through it. Now, so far, you may have noticed, hey, this kind of sounds like Dark Souls, right? And I do think that's another focal point of this episode. Not to use this as a vessel for me to air out all my problems with Dark Souls, but I do want to shed a light on this game. And I do want to say that I think it's a little bit frustrating that a lot of games that came after this would sort of use their proximity stylistically to Dark Souls as a way to get more press and more accolades. And yet this game doesn't seem to ever be discussed in that way. And I think it should be. It really does offer a similar experience, but it hits so many different emotional notes, and it's so different stylistically from Dark Souls that I think that anyone who enjoys something even vaguely within that world has to check out this game. Like, you need to play this game. It's so great. I really do feel like Hyperlight Drifter is an inversion of the emotional experience of playing a Dark Souls game. People love to say that Dark Souls is so difficult that it drags you through the mud so much that when you triumph, you're almost overcome with emotion. It's like this mix of adrenaline and joy and serotonin all just bursting inside your brain. And that emotional experience is sort of grounded in the fact that it's set in not only a ruined world, but a completely dead world. There really is no joy or triumph within the world of Dark Souls. So the fact that you can feel that way almost stands as this kind of grim, sarcastic or ironic uh, commentary on everything that you're seeing around you as you play the game. Hyperlate Drifter has some similar ideas nestled within it, but I think it's a lot more hard on sleeve, you know? It's a much more direct emotional experience. The world of Hyperlight Drifter is very strange. It's literally filled with corpses of these great sentinels that kind of look like the Evangelion units from Neon Genesis Evangelion, uh, with their faces sort of frozen in these final screams and see them looming over mountains. It's dark and it's unsettling and it's strange. The game also brilliantly uses direction to drive home those feelings. That music, which I mentioned before and I'm going to come back to, is so incredible. 
It seems to swell and collapse in all the right places to just hit those emotional notes. There's also a lot of great visual design and direction. You might walk into an area and explore for a bit before coming across a panorama. And the camera will move and the music will change in order to accent this moment. It actually reminds me a lot of Breath of the Wild. And it's so impressive with how this 2D game can just use, you know, good direction and good music to make you feel the same way that you feel when Link is standing on top of a mountain looking across Hyrule. I really think those two games are the ones that do that specific moment best across any game that I've ever played. That combination of hopelessness and beauty is really baked deep into the game's DNA. But what sets Hyperlight apart from other similar, like super hard action adventure games is that the game keeps pushing you forward. It wants you to keep playing. And even though it can sometimes feel hopeless aesthetically, it wants you to overcome the obstacles that are in the game. It's not like Dark Souls where the game just keeps bashing your head in. In this game, it's more like it's having a conversation with you rather than just negging you. I guess most gamers prefer to be negged, but that is an entirely different episode of an entirely different podcast. I'm not touching that one with a 10-foot pole, gamers. Not tonight. Hyperlight Drifter is a weirdly forgiving experience for a game that I would say is within that realm of Dark Souls-inspired super hard games. I think even though it has a different perspective and gameplay style, you could say it's akin to games like Hollow Knight and Blasphemous. It doesn't seem so different from those games until you actually play it and get into the meat of it, and it, you find that it is actually quite different. One thing that I think really, really sets this game apart is just that it's such a beautiful aesthetic experience. That little taste of it I got in the trailer really ended up being such a huge part of the game, and to me that was so exciting and refreshing. It's been commonplace for years now for games to have these very outre artsy trailers, only to end up not really being like that at all once you're actually playing the game. That Gears of War trailer with the sad piano cover of Mad World uh, by Tears for Fears comes to mind. And now I'd like it to leave my mind. Hyperlight Drifter isn't like that. It is, as advertised, a beautiful aesthetic experience. A lot of this game is you serenely wandering around this beautifully destroyed world. There's so much downtime, there's so much quiet exploration that it really does put you into a contemplative mood. I think that's one of the ways that it hits those emotional beats. You know, you almost get into a meditative state playing the game, so when things happen, even small little details, you notice them and you think about them. And they hit a lot harder than in a game where you're being bombarded with dialogue and cutscenes and etc, etc, etc. Of course, none of this would land, not even a little bit, if it wasn't for the game's absolutely incredible music. And although we talk about it a little bit later, we don't fully get into it, so I want to do a little sidebar here where I just talk about this game's soundtrack. Thank you. 
The Hyperlate Drifter soundtrack is legitimately one of the albums I've listened to the most over the last few years. Definitely the soundtrack I've listened to the most. It's honestly kind of a problem. At my old job, I used to work out in a warehouse alone and just blast either this or the Arrival soundtrack. And multiple coworkers came up to me and would say, Why are you always listening to this weird, spooky shit? I don't remember what the answer was, because I don't have a good answer. This shit is just so, so good. The Hyperlite Drifter soundtrack was composed by Disaster Piece, an artist that a lot of people might know as the composer of the It Follows soundtrack. Hyperlite Drifter was the first of this artist's music that I ever heard, and it's still my favorite. I mean, it's just so incredible. If I was to describe it in non-musical terms, I would say that it sounds exactly like the game looks. In fact, it kind of sounds exactly like one of those huge sentinels. It sounds like a huge biomechanical beast just wheezing its dying breaths. To use slightly more musical terms, it's essentially dark ambient music that moves with the flow of classical music. You know, something very organic and played by people. Yet the sounds within it are very inorganic. They sound like 80s and 90s synths, like something that you would hear in a Super Nintendo game, but put in a totally different context. They're used in very strange and subtle ways. They're not big and brash like you expect from a game from the 90s. The production around it is also incredible. There's so much lush reverb and subtle filtering that really puts it within a sense of space. Now, as great as the visual design is and as captivating as the world is in this game, I really do feel like the music does a lot of the heavy lifting and actually placing you in there. It has such a spacious sound. It's so real. You feel like you're inside of that world when you're listening to this music. There's also so many great themes and so much great writing. You know, there's just melodies all over the place. And the music is so subtle and spacious that your brain really starts to latch onto those small, strange chords and melodies and really obsess over them. It's such great listening, especially if you're trying to like relax or focus. There's few albums that I would recommend over this. It's like Brian Eno levels of great ambient music. It also has a really great, unpredictable aspect to it. You know, there's so many moments where it'll suddenly swell up and become incredibly loud and hit these big, sighing, dramatic chords. And at those moments, it just feels so powerful just because all the other parts of this piece are just so quiet and moody and atmospheric. It's a great trick that the game uses over and over. You also hear it in the arrangements, you know, something like an acoustic guitar pops in. Or drums. Geez, whenever drums come in, it's like the earth cracking open and steam spewing everywhere. It's incredible. The soundtrack is very, very long, and I love it. It's worth listening to all of it, multiple times a day, if you can. It's just great, great music. 
And once again, I think it just makes the game such an incredible aesthetic experience and really puts it in a whole other tier. You know, when I talk about other soundtracks and games that I really love, a lot of them have that same quality. They're dynamic, they give you a sense of place, and they put you really within the game. It makes listening to them not just a great experience because it's great music, but also because you're almost transported back into the world of the game. It's something really beautiful and unique, and something that makes this game so fantastic. I'm now very excited to share with you a conversation I had with my friend Justin about this game. It was so fun to jump back into this game, and I really have to credit Justin for that. He finally took my recommendation and played the game, and as we were privately messaging each other about it, I asked him to come on the show and talk to me about it. It was great because, like I said, ultimately, I just want to share the love of a lot of the games we cover, but especially games that I love as much as I love Hyperlight Drifter. And it's also cool because I feel like this game has been lurking in the margins of this show since the first episode. I mean, there are multiple references to this game in the very first episode of Zero Brightness. So it feels good to finally get some thoughts out there and have a full conversation about this game. I think it's also important to note that I really do feel like, just like Dark Souls, I feel like this game belongs within the canon of horror video games and within the conversation of horror in general. I think, similar to Yuppie Psycho, maybe some of the way that this game is advertised or presented doesn't exactly scream horror to people, but this is ultimately a very dark, menacing, atmospheric game. There really is a lot about loss and grief and sadness, and is set within a world that has been completely destroyed. It's a really dark, moving, and beautiful experience, and we talk a little bit about it within the conversation, but I just wanted to say that I absolutely think horror fans need to check out this game. And if maybe it seems like it's a little bit outside of the realm of horror, maybe just practice a little bit of open-mindedness and at least listen to this conversation, if not run to check out this fantastic video game. Okay, here we go. Alright, so I want to talk about Hyperlate Drifter because it's legitimately one of my favorite games. Uh, you know, one of my favorite games the last 10 years. And I still feel like it's kind of underrated. Uh, I can vouch for you saying it's underrated because I did not play it until you said it is what Dark Souls was supposed to be. Okay. Or it's a better, it's a better, like, one of those than any Souls game is. Yes. So that's when I finally was like, I should play it. And I double-checked my um, Epic library to make sure that I hadn't gotten it for free. And I had gotten it for free. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I think if there's sort of two thesis statements to this whole episode, number one is that it's just one of the best games ever made, and I love it. And number two is, like you said or like I keep saying, and now I'm going to say again, (laughs) is that it's the game that everyone says Dark Souls is. Like, I think, and I think that makes it underrated in a really specific way, where people just won't, like, give it the love that they would give something like Dark Souls, you know? But it's kind of got 
everything that that game has, but it does it better. So I feel like I remember people talking about it positively, but like not in that context. I, I feel like games like that really just get attention for the way they look. Like people really, people really get locked into the quote unquote pixel art thing mm-hmm. where they get locked into it's like a Zelda. Yeah. And because that's just ga- that's just gamer brain shit is it's cool pixel art. It looks like Zelda. Yes. And that's why they like it. But they're ne- like they'll never tell you on a like deeper, more fundamental level, like why that game's impactful to them. And that's what happens to a lot of like cool indie games, I think. Yeah. Is they kind of like they're they're only cool for those like couple of things. Yeah. Which is very unfortunate. Yeah. Well, and I do think you can sort of talk about this game's appeal and separate it into two sections. One being the game's aesthetics. So the way it looks, the way it sounds, because they are like incredible, like absolutely S tier mind blowing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think so too. I kind of want to talk about that later because, yeah, the most pertinent thing to me is that, like, the actual design of this game on every level is also really mind blowing. And especially if you are a fan of like super hard games or Souls style games, I think this is one that really works and is a lot more accessible and easy to like pick up and play than something like Dark Souls. Well, yeah, like this game, it. It presents you with an easier way of playing it from the gate. Like, I think it presents you with the, like, normal to easy, like, tier of gameplay. And then you are introduced to, like, ways you can play it if you want to that make it more like a, not more like a, I guess more like a Souls game. I don't know. Like, controlling how much life you have and, I don't know, just enemy behavior and all that stuff. Like, there are just insane bullet hell moments in this game. Yeah. That would be, in, like, truly just mind-numbingly hard if you play with, like, a harder difficulty mode or something like that. Yeah. Or even just restrict yourself to only using certain techniques in the game or, like, never upgrading yourself or whatever. Oh, for sure. Well, and it's really funny because I actually did a video that's on the Patreon where I've just, like, I want to play some of this game. No agenda no reason i just want to play some of it and so i started up and i was like oh you know i've never done the new game plus let me try that and i didn't realize that new game plus is actually like super hard mode basically (laughs) and you only have two hits and everything just like kicks your ass and it was crazy because yeah it made me realize that if you wanted like the full impossibly hard experience of this game you can do that and it gives you the options to do that but just on like a vanilla first play of this game, it's a really, really well balanced game. And yeah, and you can you can zoom through it too. So if you really want, if you like it, but you want it to be harder, you, I think you could legitimately beat the game, quote unquote, in a couple hours, and you could just then start your new game plus. Because the the real the real depth or the length is in chasing every single pickup and exploring all the areas. So I've kind of also aired out my feelings about Dark Souls like many times. 
and there is like a particular too many times too, probably <laughs> too many times there's like a particular zero brightness plus episode where i just was like i'm gonna put this to bed and just like say everything i think about dark souls and people can go listen to that if they want but my big problem with dark souls was always that like it's very unbalanced and i also feel like the difficulty and the particular things about the gameplay that people like to praise pull me out of like the world and the sort of like atmosphere of the game uh i think that this game is the opposite of that where like there's a ton of weird eerie mysterious atmosphere and world building and the gameplay is all made to kind of like accentuate that and keep pushing you forward rather than pulling you out of it and stopping you. So that that plus episode is the one that I was talking about. That was the thing that got me to to play it. Oh, really? That all that all yeah, because that whole thing happened in like sort of real time. Yes. With like the Discord, like we were all just bullshitting, and then that's when you're like, you know what, fuck it, <laughs> I'm gonna record an episode and literally put it out today. And that's when I was like, okay, like maybe I should finally play Hyperlight Drifter, and then I did, and I played it for an hour, and then messaged you that <laughs> I, I loved it. I want to talk a little bit about some of the big changes that this game makes to a game in that style that actually make it a more palatable experience, or to me, make it just a better experience overall. Um, I think the biggest one is that they removed the punishment for dying. So like in this game, as you're exploring, you get checkpointed at certain rooms. And if you die, you just get kicked back to that checkpoint. You know, you don't lose progress. You don't lose items or anything like that. It's just like, okay, go do it again. You know? Yeah, you're pretty much checkpointed. I wouldn't say every room because like the there's there's like soft cuts and hard cuts between rooms. Yeah. So like a soft cut is you transfer to another room, yeah. but you don't checkpoint. So if you die in that second room, you'll just go back to the first one. Yeah. But as long as you're like hard cutting, like doing there, there's not really load screens. The closest thing to a load screen is that like elevator like Metroid Prime style transition screen that's probably yeah. masking some loading. Sure. Um and like you'll you always save for those. Usually if an area is like designed to be difficult, like it's more of a challenge area, whether that's like necessary for like completing the main part of the game or you're doing like a side thing, it'll checkpoint for you. Like the one I told you about that I had so much trouble with, the like floor crystal dashing chain that ended in like a big swarm of enemies yeah like you you just you get like wherever you die in that you'll get knocked back at exactly the center of that chain yeah or the beginning of that chain so you're you're kind of just like running through it over and over and over which is part of the difficulty is you if you can't do it you want to keep trying because it's so easy to just jump back in and try it again but then like it's harder and harder because you're just getting more frustrated and like crampy and shit. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's kind of the fun of it is is trying to overcome that. Yeah. Well, and I think for me, I'm always going to be the kind of person who enjoys a difficult game if it's sort of like encouraging to you rather than punishing you. And I feel like Dark Souls and a lot of the games that were inspired by Dark Souls are all about punishment. Like even down to the aesthetics and the way they're marketed, right? It's just like, we're here to punish you. We're here to punish you. It's very like 
weird daddy baby hurt me gamer stuff that i don't fully oh understand <laughs> i don't even say that <laughs> i don't i don't think the gamers understand either dude i think a lot of gamers have a lot of weird stuff they need to work out with a therapist but um well yeah that's why there's 15 million people still playing dota 2 because <laughs> they just won't go to therapy and play like breath of the wild or something instead <laughs> they won't play therapy <laughs> they want to have 13 year olds scream slurs at them and tell them to kill themselves yeah yeah i highly recommend the game therapy to all gamers <laughs> uh it's probably free if you have good insurance so free to play <laughs> if you have good insurance <laughs> yeah i don't know what that's like but that must it's be very cool. dystopian yeah well it's not free to play for me because i pay 240 dollars a month for insurance yeah whenever people start talking about their insurance it's like i'm reading a fantasy novel I'm like what is that like hey well you know i'm living the fantasy novel right now i just flash <laughs> that card and they're like oh cool it's been great i haven't paid a single dime for finding out that i'm dying <laughs> i'm not dying gamers so i'm just joking you're gonna be okay <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's a good that's a good thing that, to talk about here, though, is it's kind of it's interesting to talk about this game in light of that news to me personally, given part of what this game's about. Are we yeah. spoiling? Is this spoilery? Are we spoiling this game? Well, you know, let's actually talk a little bit about the story then, because I don't really think you can spoil this game. Like you and a, yeah, I guess, because I listened. I told you I listened to that interview um, podcast with the creator mm-hmm. and he dropped like the main bomb I guess quote unquote at the end of the game yeah and I think even knowing that it's still like it's still impactful like it, the whole because I heard I listened to that probably two-thirds of the way through the game like yeah. I, I had done the first three areas and I was needing to do the desert area mm-hmm. um, but I hadn't finished a lot of the side stuff that I wanted to do so there's still like a lot of game left but even yeah. like even after hearing that it's still it still hit and in in a way it probably hit more because i knew like i knew what was happening it was a little vague still so knowing what's actually occurring even if it's like spoiling the end kind of opened my eyes in a different way to to the events and world of the game yeah well so for me i encountered this game in like a trailer like one of the pre-release trailers for it and i was like whoa what the fuck is that mostly because the music like i heard the Mm. music in it and which we'll get to of course yeah yeah it's insane thank you for listening to zero brightness if you'd like to support us directly you can go to patreon.com slash zero brightness you can also find and interact with us on facebook instagram and discord all the relevant links are at zerobrightness.com We'll see you out there. So I heard the music and I was like, damn, this is nuts and I need to play this game. But then it also kind of laid out the basics of the world where it's sort of this like ancient future sci-fi fantasy world. And you're playing as this mysterious warrior who's ill. Like he looks like he's dying. You know, he coughs up blood. He faints. Um, even though he can like dash and move in a really agile way, his general walk is sometimes kind of like a weird stutter step. Like he's just not a healthy, strong fantasy warrior type. Right away, I was like, oh damn, like what's going on there? Like, wh- is he sick? Is he gonna die? Like, what is the 
Well, and I'm saying he, but you don't even see the face or anything of this character. Well, you don't get that's the you don't get any sort of information like that because no characters speak. There's yeah. no actual speech. There's some like you know peanuts adult style like <laughs> yeah. noises, but there's no there's no text. Yeah, spe- there's well there's no text really. There's nothing. There's just still images and some mm-hmm. short like cutscenes and all that kind of stuff. So, and everyone's basically an animal. They're like you're the only humanoid character aside from some other people similar to you. Everything else is like an anthropomorphic uh, animal. That's what was so mind blowing to me when I actually started playing the game was I realized that like oh there isn't going to be a concrete story. There isn't going to be this like narrative or these revelations that I'm kind of like I was expecting. You know. And I was disappointed for like 10 minutes. And then I was like, oh, wait, this is like way fucking cooler, you know, to like experience the world in that vague way and have to draw your own conclusions, kind of like use your imagination. And like I said earlier, I think it makes it so you can't really spoil the game. Everything is just like a suggestion, you know? Um, I, well, like you could talk too much about what goes on through it and i think like it will lessen some of the impact because like experiencing a lot of that yourself is i would say important yeah i mean i don't know if i really necessarily need to like hit those points specifically i do think it's important to talk about how all of those things work so well in this game and why I i think it puts it above something like dark souls for example is that I think that it has a specific emotion and like a specific tone that it goes for. Oh yeah. That it hits like so, so, so hard. Right. Yeah. And I think the lack of a deliberate story is, it does, does a lot for that game. I think it would be less interesting of a game if it had a more traditional story or like a more traditional presentation. Yeah. Cause I think that like, I think, and I think it does the like dark souls thing of, there is no story, but there is a story sort of thing. I think it does that better mm-hmm. because I think, I think that running up to a character and interacting with them and having them show you like stills of something that happened to them is way more. And like having to figure out maybe what happened to them is way more interesting than like the weird esoteric item descriptions and dark souls. Yeah. Well, and to take a break from dunking on Dark Souls and dunk on another game (laughs) that I like a lot more, Breath of the Wild, it has some similarities to that game as well, even though it came first, in the sense that, like, it presents this kind of ruined world where something bad has happened, right? But in Breath of the Wild, and once again, as much as I love that game, the storytelling is so clunky. Like... You get the same cutscene about like the creation myth of this ruined world like a million times. Even when you get the flashbacks to like the heroes and their original quest, you're just kind of like, okay, it's got this like cheesy voice acting and it's not bad, but it's also not like incredible, you know? Yeah, I haven't played that game, but I feel like there's a lot of games that do a very typical like old pantheon of gods and the world being formed under calamity and then yeah we live in the post-apocalypse but it's like everyone's vibing yeah you go to to the ranch and drink the milk and do your horse racing even though the world ended yeah 15 years ago or whatever (laughs) Uh that's those are really like tropey things and uh, which is pretty 
like familiar to Zelda. They just kind of do that vibe a lot. And yeah. so not that's why this game works is because th- that just doesn't happen because you just get given images and like environmental environmental storytelling. Yeah. So you don't have to suffer through like really canned corny like exposition about yeah. why the world is the way it is. Yeah, well, it's all done, too, in, like, a really artful, beautiful way. So, like you said, the conversations are all just going up to a character and then getting, like, a little short, you know, series of pictures that are in the art style of the game that kind of show you some event that happened to this character. And, like, some of them are even pointing you towards, like, side content and stuff, but some of them are really just like, oh, look, this thing happened, (laughs) you know? And... It gets at, like, the darkness and the sadness that is, like, suffused within the whole game. Yeah, and that's... I think that's one reason you can, like, make an argument for why you would even talk about this game on this show. Oh, Is that there are so many things in this game that are just... dreadful. Yeah. Like... In the in the way that you want most horror to do to you, to just make you like uncomfortable or make you worried for something, yeah. And most horror games can't even do that. This game, between the music and the environments and some of the character interactions and like all that stuff, it is just unsettling. It's super unsettling. Yeah. Well, so the and whole- five minutes later, maybe you're just dashing along to like a more pleasant track and, uh-huh. and having fun trying to unlock a a costume by doing an 800 dash chain or something but yeah you're kind of just weaving in these moments where it's just like un uncool it's not very wavy oh no not wavy at all they are not vibing or drinking milk <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting because like the whole tone of the game and this is why i think a lot of people like you said earlier kind of got stuck on the aesthetic side of it because the whole tone of the game is influenced by every part of the game, which is another thing I said in that Dark Souls episode. I guess I'm just going to have to make that public before this comes out or just like tack it to the beginning of this episode or something. Oh, but, put it, you put it in the main feed as like a free zero brightness yeah, plus experience, which yeah. you've done before, I think. I've done it a few times. Yeah, yeah. I just try not to do it too much, but I digress. Like <laughs> I said in that episode, and I've said many times on this show that to me, good game design is where all of the elements work in harmony and like point you towards like what I think is the core of the game. Um, my one of my big problems with Dark Souls is that I think all of the elements work against each other to the point where like if you think yeah. one part of it is cool, you're gonna have to really work for the other part of it. And I don't think there's any better proof of that than the fact that like there are many, many YouTube channels devoted to talking about Dark Souls lore because, like, you gotta get it somewhere else because you can't get it at home. In Hyper Late Drifter, it's, like, the opposite where, like, so the whole setting and tone of the game is this dark and sad, ruined world. You're playing as, like, a broken hero uh, who is, like, once again, visibly ill. They'll have random coughing fits and fainting spells throughout the game, and some of them are scripted as well. Uh... And well, I believe this, they're all somewhat scripted to post boss encounters. Yeah. The ones where you're like legitimately just hacking up and like slowly walking, those are always after a boss encounter and some of the like some of the key sections, like you've unlocked a, a major opening to the game world or something, you'll have one yeah. of those. So there's really only like 
six or seven times in the game where you get the where like you're kind of agencies removed from you and you're sort of mm-hmm. walking around you're like your character is just pacing along like hacking yeah the screens like distorted and, and all that stuff yeah but it's like you combine that with the fact that all of the characters you meet are just these like sad fallen people they're sort of recounting these like horrible sort of tales of them being attacked and and mistreated like from their past and it's just got this like really sad strange sighing music that just plays for like the entirety of the game you know yeah some of the music's chill um i would never say they're like a beat maybe but like you have some like nice like lo-fi hip-hop beat kind of tracks yeah where you're just sort of like bopping along through an area and then you have some very just like harsh unsettling unnerving just noise sort of tracks yeah and the and the dynamic range on them is, is, is super intense so depending on where you are it might go from quiet to just like ear shattering and you're getting like swarmed by something or you're trying to run away from something yeah and it really all like me- like the music meshes together extremely well with the with the game yeah it's, and that's like never more evident than in the more like horror adjacent segments yeah for sure i just think that like all the elements of this game work together so well to manipulate the player in a way so to make you feel unsettled or to make you feel emotional And I think that's really the power of this game. You know, obviously we're going to talk about this game for a while, but I think one thing that we're not ever going to get at is that kind of core of it where, like, playing this game is just weirdly emotional. Like, Mm -hmm. because of all those elements working together. And because I think this game is incredibly, like, well-directed, you know? Yeah, um... A lot of those, like, per-world NPC interactions are like really sad like there's one the 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 water world fountain world i don't know what you call it um the eastern world yeah zone where you have like the 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 mink race sort of Mm -hmm. they're they're you know they're anthropomorphic mink people who all got slaughtered by frog people yeah but it's not even just or they got like enslaved slash slaughtered and it's not even just like regular style like you go to that world and the frogs have like done the vlad the impaler thing where there's just there's just mink heads shoved onto pikes yeah like these people were absolutely just ruined yeah and and even but even when you're there and you're killing what you are presented to be the aggressors like the frog characters you still feel bad for killing a lot. Like there are so many times in that game. I felt bad for killing anything. Yeah. And some of the, in some of those interactions where you can or have to kill some sort of character, it reminded me of a near a lot. There's a lot of moments in near where enemies won't attack you, but they are enemies. Mm -hmm. And not just in a, not just in the way that like you can kill them if you want, but like you are meant to kill them to progress, but they don't yeah. attack you. Yeah. And so you're like, I, but I don't. So you don't want to. Or at least yeah. I didn't want to. Oh yeah. Like I'm like they're not sure. they're not attacking me. Why why do I need to kill them? And that's like the point that the game tried that that game tried to make. Yeah. 
and that happens a little bit here and i really like that well and i think near well i guess we're talking about near automata but you know whatever yeah yeah sorry yeah <laughs> oh it's okay i just like you know somebody i mean i feel like when you say near now everyone knows you're talking about automata <laughs> i feel like no one ever really wants to talk about old near but i thought that too i also thought that about the witcher like i thought people knew that when i said the witcher i meant the witcher 3 and then like in the discord people would be dinging me like well have you played <laughs> the witcher 3 or like oh well have you played near automata and it's like Dude, come on. We've just erased all that. We're past it. It's 2021. It's fine. Uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, near Auto Tomato is a fine reference point because it kind of does something similar with the visual style. So like they don't, they don't really yeah. have similar visual styles, but they're both like somewhat cartoony, I think. There's a lot of cues that are similar. I think the like way it likes to use... Um, like like uh, photo effects and like distortion and visualizations and stuff is really similar yes. to Hyperlight. Like they both play with that a lot. Yeah, and I think that you know Hyperlight Drifter, like Near, um, has kind of a cartoony style. And like you said, there is something cutesy to a lot of it. You know, and so when it shows you these like horrific things, they honestly hit harder. Because like you're just you're like oh no like that's not supposed to be here it's it's, it's shocking in a weird way, yeah. Um, and I think that when I look at something like um, blood not bloodstain what is it called oh blasphemous <laughs> to compare yeah. this game to blasphemous which you could because they are both like two D games that are somewhat inspired by Dark Souls they have some of that feel like. In Blasphemous, the stuff isn't really shocking because the whole world is dark and violent and disgusting and has this kind of like Renaissance painting feel to it. So like when you see a giant like dead baby, you're just like, well, it's Tuesday. But like in this game, because things are like actually kind of cute and colorful, like when you see yeah, like dead bodies displayed as a warning, you're like, fuck, this is horrendous. Yeah, so if you haven't played the way the game is set up you have a hub world where there's it's just a ta- it's a little town and you have your shopkeepers and and people just running around and stuff and you can play soccer with a character to unlock some stuff all that fun shit yeah but then you go to a main zone like you would in a zelda and you go there and every like there's just always some fucked up thing happening yeah it's just also strange and it's also sad you know i, I brought up direction earlier and i'm probably going to keep bringing up direction because like I think this game is really well directed and it sets up a lot of these scenes in a really subtle and like amazing way. So like there's things like subtle camera movements and music cues and things that happen in these scenes to really like present these things to you. And it really never stopped impressing me that the game did that and was able to do it so well, you know? Yeah, the game is a really good forward momentum which is the mm-hmm. thing that you talked about um on demon daddies a couple times yeah and in, in reference to literature and even when you want to backtrack and try to catch some stuff you missed or look for look for some of the the more hidden unlocks like mm-hmm. even moving backwards through it it's still it still feels like you're going forward yes like it's never that like okay i gotta go i gotta go back to do a thing before I can't do anything else. It's even though the game is sectioned in very obvious ways, you always feel like you're moving forward in any direction you want to go. Like no matter where you go, you are, 
you're go- you're going A to Z. Yeah, but you're going like like up and down. You're you're going along three different axes axes at the same time. Yeah, and that's really like it just feels good to play in that sense. Yeah, that you're always moving towards something. Yeah, well, God, there's so much to talk about in this game, but I there's think that's a ton a, to talk about. There's so much to talk about. I think it's a good segue to go from talking about the kind of visual and sound direction to talking about some of the deeper game design stuff because. One thing that really struck me about this game the first time, and it really struck me playing it again more recently, was that the way that the game is set up and the way that it directs the player is pretty incredible. So obviously it's inspired by Dark Souls. Obviously it's very, very inspired by Zelda. And I think if people just looked at it or like watch a trailer, they would probably be like, oh, it looks like Zelda. But it's just so much more elegant in this game and it's very distinct in the way that it does things. I think that to me, what's kind of like the hallmark of the design in this game is like you said, it's very open. You have a hub world, you have four cardinal directions. You can kind of go and check out wherever you want to go. But when you get there, you know, if you're expecting a Zelda thing, you're not going to find it. You know, it's not like go to village, complete task, go to dungeon, kill boss. Um, I think what's really striking to me about this game, and especially like my favorite area is the northern one, like the snowy region. Is that where you went first? Uh, on this playthrough, I did, uh, which is horrible. I don't think you're supposed to do that. Um, okay, so I want to uh, I want to talk to you about that then in this very moment. Um <laughs> Okay. Because I do the thing where I assume that I was being guided by the game a very particular way, and that's okay. the way the game was meant to be played. But that's just me assuming I'm the center of the fucking universe. Um, <laughs> sure. I went northwest, east, south. That's the way I did it. So I did. Oh. I did the mountain. Then I did crystal forest. And then I did the the fountain world. And then I did the desert. I mean, the desert feels like the final area to me. Yeah. Like after playing all of them, that one, in my opinion, is like the de facto final area. of that. Yeah. Game. And I think that's the case. I think if you were doing it by like difficulty, I think you're supposed to do it east, west, north, south. Think so? I think so. Because I, think- I feel like the north one was the easiest one for me. It was... I, okay. It felt like the shortest one, like it wasn't as okay. expansive and it was a little more linear is not the term, but it felt yeah. a little easier to like get a grip on what the game expects you to do as yeah. far as like, here's how you find secret areas. Here's things to look for. Here's what you need to do just to progress through the main story. Yeah. The North one felt like on point. So for sure. Yeah. That maybe you're right. Actually. I just remember like, not doing it that way the first time maybe i'm getting it backwards and you're supposed to do the north one first but the first time i played i did the east one first i got my ass kicked i definitely got my ass kicked a lot (laughs) the first time i played this game so it's kind of hard to remember like where i got my ass kicked the most you know uh i mean you can go i believe that you can be you can beat any area so like i said before if you like choose to just dark souls deprived yourself in this game mm-hmm. you can do the main boss loop in any area first aside from some of the secret stuff like if you want to unlock more modules or whatever mm-hmm. you need specific types of weapons primarily yeah. the the sniper rifle sort of gun yeah to like trigger some some door locks or whatever but yeah. to complete the main game you can do that just with your basic loadout so you can go wherever you want to go 
Yes. And that was, you know, I actually thought there were a lot of parallels between this game and Breath of the Wild. Now, like on this playthrough. But once again, I think it's done better in this game because Breath of the Wild is like one of those games where technically you can run right to the last boss, like says the pro streamer guy, but like a normal player is not going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. In this game, a normal player could, and the game is set up to encourage you to play it the way that you want to play, which I think is really awesome. Um, But yeah, like I bring up that northern area because I think it has such an interesting level design and it kind of like suggests... The re- what makes the rest of the game's level design so unique and interesting which is basically you go up there and you're in an open area you know you're on this mountainside where you are continually going in and out of the mountain via passages and elevators um, and you're basically doing this huge open concept dungeon right like yeah where you're going through, you're unlocking things, and your goal is to basically like activate these four like platforms so that you can go and fight the boss. Um, and it's it's just so interesting because it's not like a Zelda dungeon. Like I said, it doesn't have that classic loop of go to village, help person, go to dungeon. It's also not even like Breath of the Wild, which really made that concept a lot more open, where it's like explore, go to a dungeon if you want, eventually you have to go to a similar kind of open concept dungeon. Um, This one is just like play the game and it just keeps pushing you forward and giving you that forward momentum, you know? Yeah, I mean, those, like the areas are great because they are they're like a Zelda dungeon mixed with an open world. Yeah. To give a reference point that pretty much anybody can relate to, it would be like if you combined Hyrule Field and Ocarina of Time with just any of the like temples. So yeah. the temple is just dispersed throughout that main field. Yeah. You're, you're sort of like transitioning between an open world and a literal dungeon because you are every area has an underground segment to it there's two maps stacked on each other so you have your underground map and your above ground map and there's yeah. different elevation points and, and connection points and all that stuff so you're always you're always going in and out but like one's not more important than the other in the sense that like the main thing you need to do isn't specifically in the dungeon or the the open world part it's all woven together so you kind of get like a fun exploratory gameplay mixed with like a dungeon style. You're in a square room, kill the enemies, open the door, do the puzzle, whatever scenario. I, I think what's interesting about playing this game again now is how it sort of does the open concept thing from Breath of the Wild. And it sort of does the exploration style of Dark Souls. But I think it does both better in this game. Um, yeah, I would. Agree. I haven't played Breath of the Wild, but I would agree on the Dark Souls, uh, on Dark Souls front. Yeah, well, I think the other thing too, and I think I'm glad you brought up forward momentum because I think that really is what this game has, and and one thing that makes it so powerful because it's not just in the dungeon design; it's in the actual like core gameplay design. Yeah. So one thing that I love about this game that I mentioned earlier is that like it keeps encouraging you to go forward by not punishing when you when you die. And it just keeps pushing you to like, try again, try again, keep playing, you know? 
And I think the way the dungeons are designed works really well, like in harmony with the gameplay itself to keep you playing and to keep pushing you forward. Just something I haven't seen really in a Zelda style game or a Souls style game. Yeah, maybe that's why I like gravitated or one reason I gravitated to it so hard. Um, and it's a lot like when I it's a lot like me reading, like I always I've I, a lot of people at this point have probably heard me joke about how I can't read. I can't read. You can't read? I can't read. I'm sorry. Dude. They, wow. they failed me. The school system. George Bush failed me. Um, <laughs> I was left behind. I did literally <laughs> yesterday. I yelled in all earnestness. People, people cannot read in America because the education system. <laughs> and then everybody in the Walmart stood up and clapped. Uh, but yeah, like I can't. So like I have a, I have like a hard time focusing on on a on a book like i get i'll start to get sleepy or i just get distracted or whatever so mm. and like the first book in a long time that like kept me glued was i read cabin at the end of the world at mm-hmm. monica's recommendation yeah and, and like you were right like that book just pulls you and i would look at i'd i'd get in bed and be like i'm gonna read for half an hour before i go to bed and it would be literally two hours later and i'd be like oh shit Oh yeah. Like it just encourages you to do that. And mm-hmm. so that's probably why cuz I think this game has helped me has helped me want to play more single player games. Just like cuz it was so effective at pulling me through the whole thing that like I'm like okay, like it's a really rewarding experience to sit with a game for 10 to 15 hours and just like play it start to finish. Like you don't have to rush through it, but like stay with it until you're done. Yeah. Like it does just, just jerk you along. And there's always, there's always something that you want to go see. And there were so many times I just had to like hard cut myself. Cause I literally had to put pants on and go to fucking work. Yeah. Um, and you, like, you're right. Like the game does so much to facilitate that between death, not really meaning a whole lot. At most, mm. you'll, you might have to go collect like a, a hidden pickup or something that you found. Um, yeah. But it's like great in an exploratory sense because before I had really figured out how you're supposed to get to some of the hidden areas, like the cues to, to find them and like what you need to look for to, to pick stuff up or see where yeah. it's hidden. Like I could just, like I could just walk off a, a ledge. If I was like, you know, this seems suspect. I could just walk off that ledge and see if maybe there was a hidden tile floating there. Yeah. And it wouldn't really matter. Like you, you lose a, a chunk of health every time you do that. But you know, when you, when, if you die, you sort of re up with however many like health potions you had before that time. Yeah. Whatever it checked. So there's really, there's no real risk and just like running around like a maniac trying to figure out where to go. Yeah. No, for sure. And I think there's actually a really good comparison between that book, The Cabinet at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay, and this game. Because I feel like a lot of my favorite writing is stuff that does kind of just take things down to their essence, right? Like, I like minimalist writing. I like writing that has, like, uh, a lot of forward motion to it. And I feel like a lot of the stuff I've been reading lately is like that. I've been reading all that dude's other books, and I've also been reading this author, uh, Grady Hendrix, who... He's kind of like a pulpy, fun take on that same style of writing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I love that style. It's exactly like you said, where you're like reading it and then suddenly it's like, why the fuck is it two in the morning? Like what is yeah. going on? Uh, but this game has that same feel because it takes something like a Zelda or like a Souls-like game and it boils everything down to its very essence. So like removing the punishment for death is huge and it is game changing, but I also feel like the way that it approaches combat is really minimalist in a cool way. Um, it basically just co- makes combat this simple set of mechanics that all have a good feel to them, you know, and it definitely has that kind of 16 bit feel to it. And then it puts you in arenas where it becomes a game of pure strategy, right? So like you have this set of moves, you know, you have a dash, a sword swing and a long range weapon you can use. Those are basically like your tools and you're put into a room where you have a set of opponents and you need to figure out the most strategic way to take them on. Like, who do you need to take out first? What order do you want to do things in? What tools do you need to use in order to like best the room? And I think that gives it a really different feel from like a more complicated uh, 3D game that has a lot of like button combos and a lot of mechanics you need to take into account because everything just becomes this pure like stripped down strategic thing that feels really good to master, you know? And I would say that stands in stark contrast to like any of the like bigger budget 3D games that we're talking about. Yeah, like, and there are some layers you can throw on top of like those core systems to make them slightly deeper, but it's never, you're never memorizing a whole list of combos or any, or like juggling yeah. like, like two different like elemental attunements that can react with each other. Like anything like, like you're the combat is still very basic. Even when you start to add in upgrades or new weapons or, or whatever. And right. even in those rooms you're talking about, like, you can brute force them. You don't even have to try to think about them. If you, if you've really gotten good at dashing around and especially if you have some of the, um, some of the abilities you could unlock, like when you dash, it deflects a projectile. Like that ability is pretty clutch sometimes. Um, you can just dash through a room and just absolutely shred people. And it's, it's super satisfying. Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. And I think that that sort of basic aspect to it, like even the upgrades just being like, okay, well now your dash has another property, you know, or now like this thing has been slightly upgraded. It puts it into, or it stands in contrast to something more like a Metroidvania type game where like you're constantly like yearning for upgrades because you want to gain some new advantage or you want to gain some new way of playing Hyperlite Drifter isn't like that. It's really just like, oh, I want to be better at the things that I'm already doing. Like the way that you approach the room is such a pure strategy thing that it's really up to you. So yeah, you can be really thoughtful. You can just brute force it, but you're going to kind of just be using your brain and this really basic set of skills to do it throughout the whole game. You know, it's not like you get the double jump and suddenly combat's easier or you get a longer sword slash or whatever. And it keeps the game from feeling grindy, which is something that a lot of like games that came after it that did the Metroidvania style thing really fall prey to, you know? Yeah, the combat at its core, like the the vanilla combat, you could call it, it like being so tight 
and always it's always viable it's always extremely viable to just to just use the blaster you start with your yeah. sword regular dashing like that always feels good and is always a viable strategy yeah and not, it's not even like a handicap strategy it is just straight up like enough that like getting the other stuff like getting the little the little upgrade bits that you can spend on different stuff like getting all that stuff just feels more rewarding because mm-hmm. you're just enhancing an already good core whereas something like like a Castlevania or a Metroid is you are made to feel a bit inferior to drive you to chase those those upgrades like you yeah. want to become you like in those games you want to become more powerful to deal with the challenges you're already dealing with but in this game you're kind of just like interested in expanding your like bag of tricks just yes. because the core you have is so enjoyable and and like always like I said always viable you can play that game start to finish at least the core of it like the main because I think some of the side rooms, the challenge areas, because each area has like a challenge area, I choose to call it. Yeah. Like specifically walled behind a thing that you only unlock after you find all the modules in an area, all eight of yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Like some of those might maybe not require, but benefit from having some of those upgrades. But like the, the main loop of the game, you can always just do like from the, the from your very start what you have at the very beginning of the game is is enough to get through that yeah and i think there's two really important pieces in there in what you said to me i think number one having the base gameplay be so viable and the upgrades be optional it helps the game avoid the pacing problem with upgrades that a lot of metroidvania games including metroid and castlevania games fall prey to which is where like you know the type of game and you're familiar with it so you're like oh like where's my double jump and the game waits until like (laughs) the very end of the game to give you the double jump and you're just like fucking pissed because you're like what the fuck bro like i wanted this 10 hours ago um it avoids that And it also avoids a problem with Dark Souls that I mentioned earlier, where like the side content sort of stands really far apart from like the main content or the moment to moment of the gameplay. Like this game is so well tuned that like you said, you can just dash through it literally and just do like the main story or you can stop and pause and kind of explore the side content, explore the extra stuff, but it's up to you. So like, my first playthrough, just because I wasn't very good at like the chain dash, I didn't really do like any side stuff. And it was my second playthrough where I was like, okay, let me actually play this for like way more hours and try and unlock all this stuff and like explore <laughs> the world more fully. And it's literally just because it's so fun to do, you know? Yeah, it is a, it's a super like just well-crafted like a gameplay system like the movement and the and the combat is so it's just on point like and i always like i feel like going back to like an old zelda i never feel like the combat's never what's good in those games yeah yeah i think it feels really shitty in most of them to be honest Um, yeah so coming to a game like this it's really great that the combat is fun like yeah, most more 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 often than not, I literally just charged into a fight. Yeah, 
like I was never doing the thing where I like perimeter run and try to just like gauge it out. I would just jump into it and, yeah. and just start swinging on dudes, especially when you start getting different guns and you get you can unlock the uh, the charge spin attack, the very Zelda E spin and yeah. all that stuff. Like it starts to get really fun to like figure out new ways to maybe not like just one tap some of the larger enemies, but really just knock them down to critical just off of one hit. Yeah. It like, it's all it's back to forward momentum. That game really works well as a, as like a, like a, a combat, like an action game. Like it's yeah. super fun to run in and just start hacking it at enemies. So I started blasting is what you're trying to say. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's also, it's crazy too, because yeah, the game is adaptable, so you can play it either way. Like, uh, one thing that happens in the game that's cool is like when you're in a larger fight, like an arena type of fight, um, basically as you defeat enemies, the terrain will change. Like, it's kind of got this weird, like geometric Mm -hmm. thing where like shapes will rise from the ground and walls will pop up or shrink. And, uh, you know, one room that really stood out to me in the northern area was like this room where there's just a ton of enemies but there are like guys on the perimeter so at each corner of the room there's like a dude and if you kill that guy part of the train changes and if you kill two guys on the same side the train will change drastically and so like you can do a really strategic thing where you kill just the right guys so the terrain changes in just the right way you want and then you can trap a bunch of guys in the middle of the room which has these platforms that fall out from under them and kill them. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of rooms in the game that are like sort of built around. If you, if you're playing smart, you can utilize the changing geometry to, to kill them. Yeah. Or to keep like, like to keep them from hitting you, but also to just trick them into like falling into a, a pit or something. It feels like a more intentional and intelligent take on the idea of like cheesing enemies, you know, there's definitely a difference between like an exploit and cheesing, I think. And I'm not really sure which one is the one I mean. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I feel like those terms, those terms are used so, so loosely. Yeah. But like, you know, there, there's a difference between you enter a game space and there's things you're meant to do or like given to you as an option. And there are things that the creator did not intend yeah that you that you find through breaking yeah and like in my mind i think maybe in my mind an exploit is when you are using something you're not meant to and cheesing is sort of like it's in the game and you're given that tool but it's like the less honorable quote unquote (laughs) way to go about it i i get what you're saying to me cheesing was just like when you break the game to get an advantage basically like Mm -hmm. My picture of cheesing will always be the same. It's from my childhood. It was uh, this in uh, Golden Axe 2 for the Sega Genesis. There's this uh, level near the end of the game where you're kind of on this like suspended bridge and there's all these enemies crossing the bridge. And me and my sisters figured out that if you start walking across the bridge so you trigger the enemies, but then you walk down to the bottom of the screen, like as far south as you can go, uh, the enemies will follow you and just start walking off the bridge. 
And so you can kill like 10 dudes, including two big mini boss guys by just like walking to the bottom of the screen and having them fall off the bridge. And it looks weird and hilarious. And the frame of the screen gets all like distorted because it's like, what are you doing? Go back to the bridge. (laughs) And so that was always kind of like my picture of what cheesing is. And in my time with Dark Souls, I did a lot of... uh, going to the bottom of the screen to get guys to fall off the bridge. Yeah, yeah. and we're just going to dunk on Dark Souls. This whole episode is just going to be dunking on Dark Souls. Um, oh, yeah, we dunk it. Like, I don't... So, like, I get that, and I get why people would think it's fun or, like, cool gameplay to be able to trick a whole mob of enemies into just walking into their death. Yeah. But to me, that's not... It's not rewarding. Yeah. Like, you want to be able to enter a combat arena and be better. You want to go into that and you want to play the game on its own, like, core terms. And you want to be able to, like, dispel all the enemies, like, solely on your own. And Mm -hmm. I think just doing the thing where you're like, teehee, and you go in and then you roll out real fast. And you just get everyone to walk into a flame trap or something and die. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't feel as rewarding as doing it yourself. Yeah, for me. But I get why people might like the 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 former, where you just cheese everything into killing itself. <laughs> yeah, like in this game, it feels like they took that idea and made an intentional version of it that uses your wits and your strategy to achieve that same goal which to me is way cooler like i think that's the thing too with this game you know another thing you kind of mentioned earlier that i want to highlight is like that feeling of achievement or that feeling of like you know overcoming something i think people like to ascribe that as like a unique quality to dark souls like they like the difficulty in Dark Souls and they feel that the game's themes and emotion are all tied into like how hard it is because when you overcome something, you are like filled with emotion. Um, And that's, that is totally true for people and I'm not going to try and like take that from people, but I do feel like that this game does it better once again, because it just feels so much more a intentional and B it feels like the game is encouraging you and just really like connecting with you on a basic level and just being like, okay, here's your tools, do it. And yes, you can do it, you know? And I guess like, yeah, maybe I'm just like a, a beta soy boy for not wanting <laughs> to be dominated by dark souls. But like, I don't know. I just like this game so much better in that regard. I felt like I connected with it more and I liked, I liked the relationship I had to it as opposed to dark souls where I felt like I was yeah. being just like abused by the game. It's a game that allows you to kind of play it as a chill game. And that's why I said, like, I play it so much. I would play it so much, like, before work. I think I wake up at 5 a.m. and, like, play Hyper Late for a couple hours. Yeah. It's like you can, it, it allows you to just, just vibe out and play it. But yeah. it it's so fluid and allowing you to just go at it really hard and turn it into a more challenging souls like experience, even without going into a whole new like difficulty tier, like a whole new like game save. Yeah. Like the game's just constantly like pushing and pulling with like difficulty and just like chill gameplay moments. And souls is just 
always about hurting you, it's 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 just not as rewarding because there are so many moments in a Souls game where you get like a little frustrated or you're just uncertain and like you end up trying to find a, a strategy or you look up an exploit or you like you take five minutes to figure it out. Yeah. And I didn't really the only time I took time during Hyperlight to look anything up was just knowing I'm like crunched for time and I want to get the eighth module after I found seven and I've gone through the whole area twice. Yeah. And I just like don't want to devote 45 minutes to like combing through the game. Yeah. Like stuff like that. I looked up but I was never just like, man, I cannot get through this combat arena or this boss or whatever. Like the game is relaxed enough to allow you to just kind of keep trying until you get it without yeah. frustrating you too much along the way. Like when you lose, like when I lost five times in a row in Hyperlight, I knew I could do it. I knew I just needed to like crack my knuckles and take a breath and do it one more time. And mm-hmm. Souls, there was just so much like, am I not high enough level? Do I need a better weapon? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? And having to look stuff up, like there's so many like just insane numbers to crunch behind that, that it's like nowhere near is ultimately satisfying as it is to just play through a game. Yes. That that takes you on a it takes you on a legitimate roller coaster ride. Yeah. Instead of always just having you go on the downward slope of the initial roller coaster ride. <laughs> yeah. And you're totally. desperately trying to find anything resembling a break. Yeah. Which is what Souls always wants to do, or it wants you to be like, oh, you're coasting now. Here's a boulder that you didn't expect. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's not... And I, like, I've played a lot of Souls games. Like, people have tried to give me shit for complaining about Dark Souls, but I've played hundreds of hours of Souls games. Like, I'm not... I'm not a guy that played it for 15 hours and was like, this game sucks. No, I liked, or slash liked, those games. I put my time in but I'm just kind of done with it. Yeah. Like that part of my life is over. I'm old. I want to chill. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too, is like, I feel like one thing I complained about in that zero brightness plus episode is that dark souls is not pick up and play in any way. And so even once you get past the mechanics, you're left with all these traps. The game has left you. Like if you answer a question wrong, you can't be this character class anymore. Or like, if you make a mistake here, this character is going to chase you through the whole game and try and kill you. And like, or maybe you go the wrong way because you don't know. Because that's so. That's my personal Dark Souls one story. Is I got that game at everyone's recommendation, played it for thirty hours, and found out I just straight up went the wrong way. <laughs> I started in the I, I was in the starting not the starting area, but like when you're first introduced to the main world and you end up in the, the where the where the snake dude is in the ruins and you have the guy at the bonfire. Yeah. And you're supposed to go to the castle. Yeah. I started going to the catacombs that are like to the left. Yeah. And I was like, man, this is hard as shit. And I was like, yeah. well, I guess that's the game. And then my <laughs> friend was like, no, dude, you're just going the wrong way. You're not supposed to go that way. And I'm like, well, the game doesn't tell you that. Yeah. Aside from like the difficulty of it. And that's the thing. Everyone just tells you how hard the game is. They're always yeah. telling you it's such a slog. But that's like that's the fun of it. So I'm like, okay, I'm supposed to hate every second of this. That's yeah. the rewarding part. And then he said, I was like, oh, so I just restarted the game. I was like, oh, this makes more sense because I can kill this dude in two hits instead of thirty. Yeah, and like that's, I, 
that's I, bad that's bad. i want to say good. i get why that's fun to people but at the same time it that's like that would be like me saying i get why people think that dota is fun that yeah. playing six thousand hours of dota is fun i'm like no you need therapy you need a hobby you need friends <laughs> like i yeah. don't think anything about that gameplay style is is particularly rewarding on an objective level yeah but maybe that's just my opinion so it's subjective whatever yeah and i think that like different there are different types of difficulty i mean that's why i think that people just saying like dark souls is hard is misleading which i also mentioned in that episode like because i like hard games and if a game is hard in the right way i can get into that like zen thing where it's like relaxing like that's how i feel about the game ikaruga which is like one of my favorite games and I think that Hyperlight Drifter to me was really impressive because it achieves that, but in a totally different way. And I think like part of it is the structure and the game design that we've been talking about in that forward momentum. Another big part of it to me is the fact that the game's aesthetics and style are really, really like baked into the game itself. So like the pacing being the way it is and like the game being forgiving in the way that it is works really well like with the kind of chill wave aesthetics (laughs) because like it has this bright and sort of 80s style like color palette yeah a lot of those color palettes are super new wavy super vapor wave lots of like turquoise and pink and purple and, and all that stuff yeah and it's got the kind of like the big clunky geometry that rises and falls from the ground everything is kind of like ringed in neon like you would kind of expect from that visual style um but it's also got the soundtrack which is just like so 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 incredible and it's basically just like this strange beautiful ambient music that sounds the way that the game looks right like yeah it mixes digital and analog elements you know just like how the game has these kind of like strange futuristic obelisks planted into these like beautiful natural vistas and yeah the whole pacing of the game works like with the aesthetics in a way that you do spend a lot of the game like just vibing (laughs) and even when you're doing a difficult section like you're always just like two seconds away from vibing you know yeah and like just the whole design of the world is part of that that momentum like there's there's a lot of stuff to see not like in a in a direct gameplay sense but just in a like things in the background things scattered in like a a map that you're in there's there's a lot to pick up environmentally like as far mm-hmm. as the story is concerned and so you you do want to keep pushing through like main areas or going through side areas because there's just a lot to a lot to pull in and look at sure that sort of like gives you more context for the world or gives you context for like what you're supposed to be doing in it and you just like you want to see more of that and even apart from that there's just so much cool artwork to see that you want to like you want to go through the game because you want to see what other you know cool stuff they're going to pull out yeah like it is a really eye-popping game and in a lot of ways it reminds me of like an old game developed by the company treasure where like each new area is so well drawn and so unique and interesting that like you said you want to keep going and especially when you start encountering things like bosses or like larger set pieces where they're all just like so interesting looking and you're just like oh shit like 
I just like want to see what's up ahead. And there's usually also some crazy like music cue that happens. It just makes like every moment of the game really memorable, which I mean, it, it's not every game that makes you feel that way, you know? Yeah. And like I said before, when I mentioned people like being drawn to the quote unquote pixel art in the game. Yeah. Um, I think the visuals in this game, they're, they're just good visuals. Like the artwork's just great. The graphics are great. And I like, I think it's high time that the, the media and just everyone in general, like stop, they stop doing the thing where there has to be a harsh line between photorealism and like retro graphics because a game like like in this game like everything just looks so good yeah like there's so much just like cool artwork there's so much like impactful artwork and i hate seeing i hate seeing the qualifier like pixel art when people talk about graphics with games like these they're always like oh it's great pixel art I'm like, why can't it just be great art? Why do you have to yeah. put pixel in front of it? Because when you put pixel in front of it, it's just like you're you're already suggesting that it, it's just not on on par with something else, or it can't be like graded alongside something more quote unquote traditional because it's old, or yeah, something. And it's just that that's super goofy to me. I don't I don't vibe with that at all. So much in this game looked so cool. And I loved going through every like square inch of this game. Yeah, there's oh man. I've rarely seen a better like ruined world, you know, than like than it exists in this game, you know. It's it's yeah. a world that's filled with these huge dead sentinels. So there's like just giant like skulls and like things lying around. Uh and you know, everywhere you go, there's like like I said, there's this kind of like sci-fi future architecture everywhere everything seems to be kind of like neon and electronic but it's all like overgrown with vines and kind of like buried in dirt and god it's so fucking cool yeah yeah like the first trailer i saw for this game that was really like eye-popping was that scene where you're like going up that kind of like mountain pass and then you like look out over uh like a ravine and there's just like a giant skull and or like a, one of the giant like dead sentinels like heads yeah. Yeah. and the camera kind of pans up and there's this crazy like music sting that happens i was like this is insane like yeah. this is so insane and yeah i totally agree i'm i feel like how are we still talking about like quote-unquote good graphics and just looking at it in terms of like the performed well it is very real like what the fuck dude there's art design you know there's like direction there's all these things that go into like <sighs> making a game look beautiful and how the fuck are we still stuck on like talking about graphics cards i don't get it people will be like oh but there's there's so much detail in this world look at this handwritten note i'm like cool man look at this fucking insane future retro world (laughs) where like i don't even know what's happening but there's just so much shit everywhere there's yeah weird meerkat people impaled and there's giant robot skulls carved into the the mountains like i don't yeah like you can you can look at both of those things and have something to say you don't have to like separate them into like best retro graphics of the year best real graphics like who cares it's fucking insane 
Well, and it's interesting too, just like even amongst those kind of like hyper real AAA games that like the ones that even just have a little bit of a sense of style and good color will always be more like visually interesting to me than yeah. the ones that don't. It's why like I like the look of Days Gone better than The Last of Us 2. And they're very similar, but like Days yeah. Gone just has a little bit more of a lush, colorful, cartoony look to it. And The Last of Us 2 is so desaturated, it may as well be in black and white. Well, yeah, it's because they want you to know the world's grimdark, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta well, drive God. that point home. Just think about that in comparison to this game, where it's like, you like this game conveys that, it, a very grimdark world, and conveys so much emotion without just being like, you know, making everything sad, quote-unquote sad, and like black and white, and using any obvious signifiers. Like, Yeah, there's... It's definitely important to bring up that like there's so many moments in this game that can rival the impact that you got out of like something in The Last of Us One, but it's happening alongside like a very vibrant world, like a world that's like suffered through a lot of things, but is still very vibrant and colorful. Well, and I think that's something too. I don't actually know if I've really talked about it on the show. I mean, I have a little bit, but not at length. So I'm just gonna do it now. Which is that, like, I think that video games have a problem with trying to ape other media because people seem to... The people who make, like, big AAA video games and the people who seem to have the most, like, stake in the industry seem to want... Or they seem to shy away from, like, the ways of communicating and the tools for communicating that are unique to the medium of video games. You know what I mean? And instead, they want to grab things from movies and books and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that Hyperlight Drifter really spoke to me because it's a game that tells a story and conveys emotion and has these like really beautiful moments without using anything from outside the medium of video games. Like, there's no dialogue, there's no cutscenes, there's like, there's even like text really. And it's all just still doing all these things. That's always going to be more impressive to me than something that's like, it's like a blockbuster movie. Here's the sad part. Like, here's where the character dies. Like, blah, blah, blah. You know? Yeah, even the the upgrades you can purchase, like, don't... <laughs> they don't expressly tell you what they do. No. <laughs> There's just, like, a little, like, flashing thing somewhere that you're supposed to figure out that that's what it does. And it's usually pretty intuitive. You, you know what you're getting into. But, like, it, they, yeah. they stick with that. Like... And I'm sure to some people that's to a fault, but they they are committed to a game in which no one really speaks to you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I never figured out if that meant something more or if that's just kind of like an aesthetic they chose. But, yeah, there's, yeah, that the, the whole no dialogue thing is is really core to this game's identity, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I think when I was like a kid and I was playing games and games that like affected me emotionally or that maybe suggested something like deeper about them. A lot of times it was games that didn't use dialogue or didn't use cutscenes or things like that. And so I always love to see games that take that route and just try and like suggest something without telling you everything. That's just so much more effective to me in the medium of video games because it almost seems like wasteful to me when people just try and do the like it's a blockbuster movie thing because it's like you have hours and hours and hours to like connect with the player on like a direct level on an emotional level and instead you're like hold on let's just make you watch cutscenes, which are just like movies but not as good you know <laughs> like yeah yeah this game this game's probably got maybe one minute 
to one yeah. minute, 20 seconds worth of cut scenes and everything yeah. else is stuff you're just kind of experiencing um, in the game. Granted, those, those, those still images you get from NPCs are kind of at your leisure. If you want to like look at one for as long as you want, you can do that. Um, yeah. But there's, there's only a really short handful of straight up cutscenes in this game, mostly at the beginning and the end. Yeah, and they kind of look like the cutscenes in like Yuppie Psycho, where it's just this kind of like pre-rendered still sort of like 16-bit hyped up Neo Geo looking thing. Most of the motion's just like a camera panning over like yeah. a larger like a gif maybe like it's a it's a pretty large still image with like a couple of moving parts and then the camera just sort of like sweeps over like it's an image larger than the frame you're in so you're kind of just yeah. moving along it so they're only cut scenes in the sense that they are non-interactive moments where you're just looking at a, at a visual yeah like you said it's they're very very sparse you know most of the way that the game is communicating with you is just showing you images so it's letting you explore the ruined world. It's letting you listen to the music that's kind of like swelling under you at just the right moments. And it's letting you just draw your own conclusions. You know, it's letting you watch this dude just like cough up blood and just generally not be doing so hot <laughs> while he's doing this Zelda style quest. And even just that is just like you start to feel like a lot of emotions about this world and you start to get invested in it without anyone being like, a thousand years ago, a dragon was born. You know, like, I just think that's so much cooler. Yeah, and maybe to get into vague spoiler territory. Um, sure, sure, yeah. Welcome to the spoiler zone. I think one of the most impactful moments that I had as far as, like, something like that's concerned is... So you're not the only one of you in this game? Right. There is one character that you you run into and i think you see some other ones throughout the game that are that are dead um yeah but there is one that you run into in every area when i got to the desert area as my final final area you get there and as you've gone through he's that character like that character starts the first time you meet them very stoic very like he looks like shovel knight kind of <laughs> yeah like, really like chest out like upright very tough dude who kind of points you I believe he's the character that points you to where the boss is in every area. But yeah. as you go through, gets more like sickly the way you are, like a little more like the first time. I think it's just like a little like because <laughs> all the characters have like a really like high pitched pixely like noise they make when they cough. Yeah. So he just gives you one of those. And as you go, it gets worse. And then in the final one, he's like on the ground the way that you are in certain scenes in the game, like just hacking up and you get another little, little screen of images and then he dies. Yeah. You know, that hits and he goes down and if you come back later, the little floaty boy that your character has that, that yeah. character also had is like just still hovering there above the yeah. body, like not leaving. Because, you know, they could have chosen to have, like, if you come back later, the the robot's gone or something, you know, there's just a body or there's no body or, you know, whatever. But they chose to have, like, no matter when you come back, that that companion is still, like, floating above the corpse. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's kind of like we've been saying where the game just leverages these little details and these little things to, like, be emotionally impactful. And it creates a world that is sad and dark not, you know, because of obtuse dialogue or some sort of story or, you know, 
like Warhammer 40k like oh war is hell shit like it's literally just that like the things that are sad and dark in the real world are sad and dark in this strange cartoon world right like yeah you know a lot has been made of the fact that like the the director of the game Alex Preston like has a congenital heart disease and like the name of the company is heart machine and the character in the game is sort of like sickly and has problems you know like has, or like, yeah. or like visibly has health problems um and i think that there is a lot of that realism though like throughout the game like they live in this ruined world that seems to be like poisoning them and you know people are subjugated and are like subject to this like violence of the state and all this shit and like the game is just filled with these little details and as you're playing it it really just starts to stack up and create this environment where you're just like god this is really fucked up in the way that like the real world is fucked up even though it is like a fantasy adventure game you know and and in some way like there are some like overarching themes that would give the impression that it is like a violence at the hand of the state kind of thing but there's also a lot of just like tribal violence yeah. like in the world that's left over after yeah. something terrible people are just gr- like different groups however they're divided whether it's race or whatever like can't stop just trying to exert power over other other because in most of the main regions the impression you get is that someone was overthrown in that region like each region belonged to a specific race of character yeah and someone showed up and tried to take everything they had yeah like even even in the world ending like (laughs) no one can can just exist there always has to be someone who fancies themselves the the ruler yeah and so there's just always an oppressive feel to the to the game world even in the even in the more like pretty moments i guess whether that's musically or environmentally or whatever like there's just yeah you can't go more than like 40 feet without finding some evidence of of oppression i think that's another good point of comparison to like near automata in terms of like why is this game so emotionally affecting and also why is it relevant to people who like horror or the horror genre yeah like i think it's like both games do the same thing where they try and take what is a relatively normal action adventure sort of fantasy game and they suffuse it with real world horror and then they also use like the presentation tricks that are pretty unique to horror games. That's another thing I mentioned in that Dark Souls episode was that uh, Dark Souls became unique at the time because it was taking things from horror games and putting them into an action-adventure game. So you've got this environmental storytelling that speaks to things like illness and political violence and all this sort of stuff. And then you've also got this music that's very like dark and suggestive and ominous most of the time. And then you've got the story that ultimately has a lot of big emotional beats. Like, when I played Nier Automata, I was like, man, this is like straight up a horror game. Not just because there's like scary shit in it, but because it uses the same tricks, like the the audio and the visuals and, and the storytelling. All the same things that we would expect from a horror game show up in that game. And they do very much in this game, too. It's just much more subtle and like you said i think a lot of people do gloss over this game because it is like a 2d quote-unquote retro style game like even though there's nothing 
in the 16-bit world that is at all like this game you know? yeah they they kind of latch on to the to the new wave color or the the vaporwave color palette and and the zelda style combat and you know i'm sure some people latch on to the the grim darkness of a character coughing up blood and there being giant skulls or whatever everywhere <laughs> yeah you know i feel like what little i remember hearing about this game it, like nothing of importance was ever relayed to me. It was just, it was just another quote unquote one of those. Yeah, which doesn't really convince me to play a game like this. Like I don't need to know that it is a good Zelda like game or yeah. has cool pixel art. Like you, I need to be sold on it in a different way because there's so many. You can go on itch.io and find a billion Zelda like games. You need to tell me why this one is is different because yeah. i'm gonna i'd rather give some dude four dollars for his game boy style game than pay thirty dollars for an indie game if all you're gonna tell me is that it's like zelda yeah <laughs> totally and it's a huge shame and one that i've been kind of like fighting against now for years where it's like no it's not like that and it bums me out because there are indie games that are just like another one of those that get way more coverage and seem to be way more venerated just because they have a better like PR angle, I think. Yeah. And I think indie is sort of moving into a, it, it was different and maybe this will probably be more of a discussion point in a, in an upcoming episode, but around the like Xbox live arcade era where indies became sort of a mainstream thing. Yeah. At that point they were, I would say truly indie games, but I think now with how far all that's come, a lot of indie games are now just sort of filling up a like you could call it one a to double a space yeah where they they're not games made by two people anymore they're games made by like you know maybe not huge teams in the way that like a triple a game is made by two to five hundred people but you know a pretty sizable team like a like a super giant games game is going to be I would like a, like a double a game almost I'd say like there's a lot of prestige and money and stuff put behind those and something like this is probably more along uh, like that line I guess like it's yeah. a more polished like expansive bigger feeling game than just something you would go on like you would just google a freeware game you know like that like at that point a game like that is what I would call an indie game like going to itch yeah. and finding a three dollar two hour like sprite based game is more of an indie game yeah oh yeah no for sure i mean uh hyper drifter definitely walked so that all these games now could run you oh, know yeah. games like hollow knight and blasphemous and you know all that shit like but yeah you're right i think this game maybe was like a few years too early to get like all of the the flowers that it deserves and it's not like people hate this game or it's totally overlooked. But yeah, like you said, I feel like it's maybe more in that realm of like people thinking it's just one of those than where I put it, which is like, this is the best yeah. game ever. Like, Yeah, it's a, it's a saturated market. And yeah, you know, but they have they've done well for themselves. And I'm sure that when their next game comes out, it'll it'll be a, a fairly big hit. Or I hope it is. Anyway, it's exciting to see them go to a, a 3D realm and and have and, and still hold on to a similarly dark uh game world yeah the new game is interesting it looks a lot like this but it's in 3d 
you know, it's a much more modern looking game. I don't know if there's actually like real gameplay that you can see yet. No, but there's a lot of teaser trailers. There's like a, yeah, yeah, there's just trailer stuff, but you, you get the vibe. You can figure out what it's going to be yeah. like just looking at that. It's maybe going to come out this year. Like, God, I hope so, dude. <laughs> probably not just because I said that out loud, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would love I would love for it to. But I mean, God, I really Drifter is so good. I'm I'm glad that I kind of got motivated to replay it and and talk about it because this game is just it's just so incredible, you know. Like it's it's just a, a really like artistic, beautiful game that hits so many notes and does so many things that people say they want games to do. Yeah. It's like here it is. It doesn't. Yeah, it's like if you, if you take nothing else away from this whole thing, just take away that you should play the game if you haven't. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't say a lot of games really affect me um, anymore or, like, be- like quickly become, like, a, a, a true favorite for me, but I think that, that this game did very quickly. Like, very early on, I knew that... I knew that I wanted to... Like, I knew I, knew I wanted to finish it. There's a lot of games where you just play them and you're and you're just playing them you're just going through motions but like an hour into this game i knew i wanted to not only see it through to like the story end but try to at least do a good chunk of of all the side stuff like for no other reason than to just see it and do it yeah totally and so it's it's worth it just just play it (laughs) you can probably get (laughs) it for extremely cheap um yeah if you're into physical versions, they exist, but they're probably very expensive now because that was another one of those limited run type things. They do um, seem to continually reissue that like Switch version. Mm, limited run okay. does, so That's it's cool. possible to yeah. get a get a copy of it on Switch. Yeah. yeah. If you want to copy that soundtrack on vinyl, though, you're gonna have to <laughs> you have to pony up a, a good a good <laughs> bet for that yeah well it's also like what like four discs five discs it's four discs yeah yeah i kind of yeah. i wish they would just put a cd version out yeah that would be yeah i would love but. yeah it's like one of my favorite albums ever so i'd love to own it <laughs> also yeah soundtrack very good <laughs> yeah i'm assuming i'll do a cut in of me talking about it for another hour oh yeah i love that that soundtrack's out of this world yeah. I wouldn't call it chill study beats because sometimes you get to the really like aggressively harsh noise tracks, but I listened to it so much at my old job when I was like just out in the warehouse working alone that like that oh, just became big, big vibes. Yeah. Yeah. That just became the sound of the warehouse. And like <laughs> people still, though, everyone like there were, like four people who work there and they would still just walk by and be like, what are you? Li- what is this spooky shit you're blasting in the warehouse? Out of these old hi-fi speakers. You just you just like turn your head over your shoulder like Nosferatu and you're like nothing <laughs> it's not for you <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, like and I guess the only thing I'll say about the music is like you mentioned uh, before with like some of the the more like weird technical designs merged with natural designs the music plays with that a lot there's a lot of yeah. like more acoustic string percussion based sounds mixed in with a lot of like really grating like electronic noise yeah so you're, you're you're kind of on the same ride on the soundtrack that you go through on the on the game so they like they do complement each other extremely well like to, to the same tier i'd say that like how like super giants music is very good on its own and also is like created very intentionally along with the game's pacing like the the music for hyperlight it does the same thing it's 
they feel like they were made at the same time, like at the same pace, like lockstep. Yeah. One thing that I've said a lot on this show about soundtracks uh, is two things. Number one, in video games, they should always be dynamic. And the music in this game is like super crazy dynamic. Like it feels like it's always, it's like breathing and moving with the game. And it always seems to swell and shrink at like just the right moments. The other thing is that to me, like the best thing you can do with a soundtrack that's very hard to nail is making something that sounds the way that the visuals look, you know, like whether it's for a video game or for a Mm -hmm. movie or whatever. And this soundtrack is that 300% like it matches the look of the game perfectly. And then, yeah, it also matches like the emotional tenor of the game perfectly. So to the point that you don't really know, like what came first. Yeah. Or if either came first or if they both, like I said, just were kind of made at the same time. Like uh, they feel very dependent on each other. Yeah. Well, and that's something too. Another thing that I love in soundtrack work that's more just specific to me is that I love it when the soundtrack is kind of like half ambient sound design and half music. And that's absolutely how I feel about this. Um, like one of my favorite soundtrack composers is Johan Johansson who did Mandy and Arrival and uh, his stuff is like really incredible in that way uh, and this game has a lot of that feel uh, or the soundtrack this game has a lot of that feel where there's moments where it gets so quiet and so diffuse and just pure sound that it doesn't even feel like music anymore and then like a musical phrase will kind of like rise out of the morass and it's uh, fucking insane it's so good I can ride hard for uh, the Arrival soundtrack. It's got a, it's got a lot of the same vibes that Ghost in the Shell soundtrack has. Oh, sure. There is, there is a lot of range to it. Um, there's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of quiet moments. There's a lot of like really like swelly large moments, and there's a lot of like similar use of percussion and, and um, chants and stuff that I really like. Yeah, totally. No, it's it rocks. It's amazing. So go listen to the Hyperly Drifter soundtrack, the Arrival soundtrack, <laughs> and if you can get your hands on it, it goes in the Shell soundtrack. Okay, so I don't know how you're going to fit this in, but here it goes. So I told you at some point that I was going to drop a bomb on you about okay. how this game is t- connected to another game. Okay. <laughs> there are things in this game that are very Destiny 2. Okay. I don't even know really what Destiny is, so you're going to have to tell me these things. <laughs> so I'll just explain it as I make the connection, so I don't want to explain to you a whole like lore book worth of shit for Destiny. Okay, thanks. Um, so the character the character you play in this game, and the, some of the other characters you run into, or I guess the only other character that you run into that's like you, are referred to as Guardians. Yeah. Which are the same thing the player characters are referred to in Destiny as. Okay. And in that game, you have there's a few classes. You have like your space, per- you, you have your your magic person, your your all other like hunter person, and your like big dude, yeah, strong person, sure. Um, but like they're th- th- that's like the character. Like they're the they're like a they're warrior classes, basically that, similar to how you are in this game, right? Um, both in this game and in Destiny, you have a floaty robot. <laughs> that uh-huh. does things for you that interacts with things in the environment okay so in destiny when you need to interact with something nine times out of ten it's you just like throw your ghost out and it it interacts with 
like a console or or something in the game world. And so like, you know, in Hyperlight you'll you'll interact with a like an elevator panel or find a hidden walkway or something and your little your little buddy will do it. Or it'll pop up a prompt for you to interact with something. Like all the prompts in the game are provided through your little floaty robot. And so like and also in Destiny those characters are effectively immortal. Yeah, like they die and the ghost r- just brings them back. Cuz all the the guardian characters in Destiny were people who died previously and were reawoken as as guardians. Okay. So they're they're the little robot finds them and brings them back. Okay. And so in Hyperlight you're always like you're you're always on this like cycle of of living and dying and Yeah, and there is kind of a weird like Buddhist, you know, wheel of karma thing to it yeah there's very much a like you fell into a bottomless pit and definitely died but then you just like you literally wake up you literally when you die in hyperlight you're laying on the ground like you don't just spawn in back at the checkpoint normally you you rise up you're basically like huddled on the ground and you sort of bring yourself back up yeah yeah you gamers rise up yeah, yeah, of course. Always. <laughs> Always. Never 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 back down, dude. <laughs> Always be rising. Headstrong. <laughs> dude, no. <laughs> um, and then the I think the last thing is that there was a, one of the guns you pick up in that game is very similar to a class of weapon in Destiny. The one where you um have to charge it oh, to sure. shoot like a straight line. Yeah. That's like a whole thing in, in Destiny. Those types of guns where you, there's like a charge period that fires like a bolt. Yeah. Well, I, I buy all of this. I mean, one of the few things I know about Destiny is it's kind of got that sci-fi future ancient realm thing going yeah, on. Yeah, it's right? it's space yeah. magic, so there's there's lots of spaceships yeah. and stuff, but then you're also like going into underground caves with aliens that do chaos magic and shit. So. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Similar vibes, yeah. Yeah. I just thought it was... Uh, I thought it was cute while I was playing the game that I kept being like, man, that's just like Destiny. <laughs> the game that you were ignoring Destiny for, you were like, oh, it's Destiny. <laughs> I mean, turns out I'm ignoring Destiny for a lot of games now, which is probably the way it should be because yeah. I'm an adult and I don't need to play <laughs> a video game for 7,000 hours anymore. Yeah, yeah. Gamers rise down. I support this. Yeah. I fully suggest that you rise down. If you have <laughs> if you have more than 300 hours in any game, I suggest playing another game. Yeah, that's solid. That's solid. Unless rack. it's like 300 hours across like a five-year period, please just give yourself a break. Yeah, I mean... I like to give myself breaks from all my hours I have in Pro Tools, you know, so it's good. Exactly, dude. That's the (laughs) ultimate video game, some might say. It is the best video game of all time, for sure. It's the game of the year, for sure. It's got the best graphics. Uh, Game of the year every year. Actually, they just did a big uh, UI update, and it kind of looks like doo-doo. Nice. Oh, so they added ray tracing to Pro Tools. (laughs) Does ray tracing make everything darker for no reason? HDR mode and ray tracing. uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, this is like the oversaturated. It's the California filter. Yeah. (laughs) Can you get a Mexico filter for that one? Uh, No, you can only do so much uh, with the the filter. (laughs) I would like to. I would actually pay extra monthly to have the Mexico filter uh, Pro Tools version. Damn. Yeah. Damn, they heard that though. They're coming for you. <laughs> My phone is ringing. I have to go. They're gonna, like show up at your door. So we heard you wanted the Mexican. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then Monica's gonna just slam the door in their face and be like, "What did you do? <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> what have you done? What did you tell these whites?" <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Adobe is here. <laughs> yeah. 
oh, with God. his adopted stepson, Flash player. <laughs> Dan Adobe. Wait, is Flash Adobe? Uh, yeah. Well, didn't they kill it? Yeah, I just couldn't remember if it was an Adobe problem. Yeah, yeah. That, that, was, the flash jo- that was the joke I was trying to make. But oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, his dead son. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he just carries around his son in a little, like, windowed coffin. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Look at my son. Look at what you did to him. Remember playing hentai games on this guy? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, no, we have to stop there. You know, when I said that I wanted to change the format of the show, and I didn't want it to be a games review show anymore, I meant it. But that doesn't mean that from time to time, I don't want to jump on here and really like advocate for a game. This episode had a lot of topics in it. You know, we talked about super hard games. We talked about atmospheric storytelling and world building and games. But ultimately, I just want people to go play Hyper Light Drifter. I really just want people to experience a game that I think is one of the greatest games I've ever played and is a bit overlooked, in my opinion, you know? I hope in this episode we were able to communicate to you just how important this game is and just how fantastic this game is. I think that There's so many interesting and cool things going on in game design right now and so many things that have been building up over the last 10 years. And for that decade that just came to a close, I really feel like Hyper Light Drifter just exemplifies the best of all of those ideas and all those trends that were so prevalent in that time. So yeah, play that game. (laughs) If you've played it already, play it again, or at least pop on the soundtrack. And if you haven't tried it, I really hope that you take this as an opportunity to go check it out and just go on one of the most unique and amazing and moving journeys that you can take within a video game. Thank you for listening to episode 93 of Zero Brightness, and I'll catch you guys next time.